Right. Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. We started this book last week. Started talking about the church at Corinth, the church of God at Corinth. And learned a few things about these Corinthians last week. We learned that the city of Corinth is kind of like, a, or was kind of like, a mix of New York and Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And they had the diversity of New York, the seashores of Los Angeles and the beaches, and the sin of Las Vegas, these Corinthians. The church was started there as Paul stayed there 18 months to help them get going, to teach them many things and to work through many of their sins. And we discovered last week in those first few verses of the book that though they had many sins, they were still called holy. Though they had many issues, many different ways that they were rebelling against God's commands, they were still called saints, living holy ones, set apart for God. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And we'll get into verse 4 is where we'll start this week. But let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for today, for your day, the Lord's day. We thank you that this is a day where we come together to worship corporately as your people. And it's also a day that we remember the resurrection of Jesus. It happened on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Lord, everything that we have in this life, all that we set our hope on, goes right back to Jesus. And God, we want to learn more about who you are. We want to learn more about who we are. We want to learn more about the gospel today. God, give us great insight. Cause us to be changed by what we read and understand. And though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, Please do not allow me to get in the way, but have your word to be so clear to your people. Give us a great time of fellowship around the word and a great time of fellowship as we encourage one another today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this church, this Greek church in the city of Corinth, they also had an iffy relationship with the Apostle Paul, the one who is writing this letter. It's not like they were all great buddies and they all got along really well. There were some Corinthians who seemed to almost despise Paul in such a way that he had to defend himself and his ministry from the Lord. The book of 2 Corinthians gets into more of that. But I want us to see something right off the bat this morning as Paul, this apostle called by God to serve this church at this time. I want you to run your eyes over the first few verses of the book, maybe all the way down to verse 10. Do you see something popping up quite a bit? Well, you should see the words Jesus in the, in the word Christ. You should see Jesus Christ popping up. In fact, Jesus is referenced 11 times in the first 10 verses of this letter. Where was Paul's focus as he wrote to this church, as he had many important things to say and many complicated things to work through? His focus was on the Savior, Jesus Christ. His heart 
was for the Corinthians to grow in their knowledge of Christ, to grow in their relationship with Christ. Because don't you guys know that when you get to know Jesus more, when you have a deeper relationship with your Savior, that other things in life seem to kind of take care of themselves? There are still issues we have to work through. There are still sins that we have to work through. But the closer you are to Jesus, don't you find that your perspective changes? And Paul is putting their minds right at the beginning of this letter, saying over and over and over again the name Jesus Christ, drawing their attention to the Messiah. And he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He starts off this section by letting them know that he's thankful to God for them. This is the same thing that he said to the Romans, to the Philippians, to the Colossians, and to the Thessalonians. Paul always saying he was thankful for these churches. But he wasn't thankful to himself, was he? He started the churches, didn't he? Couldn't he have said, I'm so thankful that I did this. This is so great. I'm so good. <laughs> Heaven forbid. He didn't say he was thankful to them for what they did. He says he's thankful to who? To God. I thank my God always concerning you. Paul's perspective was one of being focused on Jesus and understanding that it's the work of the Lord that builds churches. It's the work of the Lord that brings sinners together under the banner of the gospel that they would be justified by faith alone. Paul is not the ultimate reason why the Corinthian church existed as a church. He knew that. Paul recognized that God is the one who gives grace in such a way that a church is established. His thankfulness to God was evidence that he saw beyond their sin issues and all the decisions they had made, both good and bad. He saw past all of those to see what God was doing in their lives. He was thankful to God for them. And remember last week, if you look back up to maybe... Uh, verse 2 there, we were talking about the calling, how they were saints by calling, and they, along with believers in every place, call on the name of the Lord. How were they saints? How were they declared holy ones? Well, it was by the calling of God. And we looked at Romans 8 last week. I want to look at it again. Romans 8, 28 through 30. You know verse 28 probably. We know that, all, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And sometimes we we stop there when we quote this verse. But it's not just for those who love God. He qualifies it even further to those who are called according to his purpose. Called for what? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And beautiful verse 30. Romans 8, 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. How could Paul be thankful to God and God alone for these people? Because it's the calling of God. God predestines, God calls, God justifies, and God glorifies. It's all a work of God. All of salvation is a work of God. It's a gift of God, Scripture says. And so our perspective must be one of thankfulness to God. 
even with a church like this one. The artist, soon to be formerly known as Payson Bible Church. <laughs> we shouldn't be thankful to ourselves. We shouldn't be thankful to Dan Lupton, our founding pastor back in 1970. We shouldn't be thankful to any of the pastors all the way down the line. We should be thankful to God and God alone that He did this. As we stand together and we look around the room and we see each other and we hear our voices singing out with one voice to the Lord, we can only be thankful to God because God is the one who calls and He's the one who builds His church. He's the one who places His call on some to receive grace. And here we are. And where is that grace found? Look at verse 4 again. The grace of God that was given to them, given to us, it's found in Christ Jesus. Salvation can be found in no other place. There is grace in no other place. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved but Jesus. In Christ we have the grace of God given to us. And we find in this passage, this beautiful passage, not only do we have this grace, this salvation as some generic concept, but putting more on this concept, it says in verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in Him, Jesus. You were enriched in Jesus in all speech and in all knowledge. That word enriched means what it looks like it means. It means to be made wealthy to be given riches. All believers in Jesus, along with the Corinthians, if they truly have come to know the Lord, they've been made rich. They are of great wealth. And of course, these riches weren't awarded in silver and gold and diamonds and things of that nature. But it says right here in verse 5, how did those riches come to us? How are we made wealthy? In all speech and in all knowledge. Let's dwell on that for a few minutes. Made rich, made wealthy by speech and by knowledge. How does that work? Some of you are thinking about what you know and what you say, and you're thinking, I'm not that rich. <laughs> but here's the promise of Scripture that in Jesus, we are made wealthy in these ways. For the Corinthians, for us, for all sinners who have come to know the saving grace of God, we've received a new message that results in new words. We've received a new message that affects our thinking, that affects our knowledge, the good news, the gospel. We receive it. And that affects what we talk about, what we communicate, what we write, what our priorities are. If we are in Christ, our speech and our knowledge are affected dramatically. As we move from the domain of darkness into the domain of light, Everything changes. And what could be more important than the things that we think and the things that we say? That is so important. It's everything that we do. It touches every aspect of our lives, how we view the world, how we think about others, and what we say. God puts new songs in our mouths, doesn't He? He puts joy in our hearts, and there's an overflow. Jesus says that, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when God comes into our lives, when He interrupts us with His grace, and everything changes, our thoughts, the deep intentions of our heart, 
so does our speech. What we desire to communicate, what we desire to say to others changes. And it's not just how we sound. This passage isn't saying that when you become a Christian, you become a great public speaker. It's not the case. You don't become an instant Tony Robbins or something like that when you become a Christian, okay? When you become a believer, it's just talking about the priorities of what you say and what you communicate. Out of all people in the world, you would think perhaps, all people besides Jesus, perhaps the Apostle Paul was a powerful speaker, right? You might just think that by default because he was an apostle. But we see multiple times in both letters to the Corinthians that it was said of Paul that his speech was feeble. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he's writing this letter to the Corinthians and he says, I know that some of you have said when he writes, it's very powerful, but when he shows up, his speech is very contemptible. He's just this little pipsqueak guy, what they say. His letters are so mighty, but he shows up and it's very unimpressive in person. It's not just about how we sound, it's about what we want to say. Some of us feel like we aren't very good at speaking. Public speaking, what? It's the number one fear over death, something like that. Death is number two to public speaking. Some of us feel like we're not very good at it. But let me tell you, if you are in Christ, if you love the Lord Jesus, God will use you. No matter how feeble you think you are, no matter how frail you think you are, no matter how much you stutter. Remember, who was that famous stutterer? Moses? You think God, God said, well, Moses, I'd love to use you, but you get a little tongue-tied, and I can't work with that. Moses tried to back out. He said, God, I can't speak for you. I, I stutter. God will use you, even if you just use the written word. However you want to communicate, God will use it. He uses our speech. Look at chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first five verses. Look at what he says. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech. Interesting. Or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But what were they of? It says right here, they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul says, I was not an impressive speaker. But this is because their faith was to rest on the power of God, not the power of man. Not the persuasive words, not the cunning talk that we can come up with. But their faith was to rest on the power of God. And so no matter how broken our speech is, no matter how poor we think we are at speaking or communicating ideas, if our heart is in the right place, knowing that we have been enriched in, in Christ and our priority is to build up others in Christ, whether they're saved or lost, God's going to use that because it's the power of God through us. It's not our own skills. 
And hopefully, your desire is to build others up in Christ. Hopefully, you have that priority straight in your life. Hopefully, your speech priorities changed when your knowledge changed, when you came to know the Lord Jesus. We are enriched in all speech and in all knowledge. What is this knowledge? It's the knowledge of Christ. Knowing Christ. Having relationship with Christ. Understanding through the gospel how you are united by faith to Christ. This isn't the world's knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8.1 talks about the world's knowledge that puffs up. It says that there's a knowledge out there that puffs people up. Um, knowledge makes arrogant, it says. That's not the type of knowledge that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a true knowledge of Jesus. And it's also not exhaustive knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13.12 talks about how we see in a mirror dimly these days, but there will be a day when we know face to face. Now we only know in part, but there will be a day when we will know fully. And so this knowledge that we've been given that's made us wealthy, how we've been enriched in all knowledge, it's not the world's knowledge and it's not exhaustive knowledge, but it's a true knowledge of Jesus. It's the knowledge that God has given us. It's not exhaustive, but it's what he's given us that's sufficient through the gospel, a knowledge of of Jesus Christ. And just because it's not exhaustive, that doesn't mean it's untrue. That knowledge is pure and good and holy knowledge. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Keep your finger here, but turn to the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. My favorite New Testament book, 2 Corinthians 4 verses 5 and 6. Let's see what God says about this knowledge that we have in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 5. It says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has, come, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So many prepositional phrases in that, in that verse that are so worthy of breaking down and knowing further. But what has God done in the gospel? He's come into our dark hearts. He's shined the light. And what is that light? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we understand the glory of God. That true, pure knowledge that changes our hearts. Turn with me also to Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. I want you to turn there. I know it will be up on the screen, but I don't want you to cheat. I want you to know where Colossians is. Turn forward. Find the book of Colossians. Go to chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writing to the church at Colossae. So this is a different church. But the same concept being found here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, 
resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ Himself. Verse 3, In whom, Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we come to know God through the gospel, we attain to, look at verse 2 again, all the wealth, we're enriched, all the wealth that comes from a full assurance of understanding, a true knowledge of God's mystery. Because all the treasures, all the riches of wisdom and knowledge that you could have are found where? In Christ! You cannot have true knowledge or true wisdom apart from Christ. But all the wealth of understanding is found not in a place, not in a book, but in a person. Jesus, the righteous one. So how could our speech not be affected by this knowledge? If we have been so enriched in Christ and we've come to know and understand true knowledge and true wisdom, the gospel, who God is, who we are, that's true wisdom and knowledge. If we've come to know these things in the gospel, how could our speech not be affected by this? How could our speech not also be enriched? But if our hearts have been so changed that we've been born from above, born again, doesn't that change our priorities, the things we want to say? Doesn't that change what is most important in communication in our lives? Now, when someone comes to us with a problem, it changes the way we give counsel. When we're just having our everyday weekend conversations with the neighbor, Doesn't it change the way that we want to steer that conversation? When we come together as a church body, doesn't it change our perspective from just a, well, it's a gathering of nice people, it makes you feel good and you go home? Doesn't it change to, let's build each other up. Let's encourage one another as we see the day approaching. Let's speak to one another words of life in Christ. It should change all of our priorities. The speech that's been enriched, the knowledge that's been enriched, it's not just for yourself. You're certainly a benefactor of it all. But it's not just for yourself. It's for both the church and the world that these riches would be shared. You have been enriched for the sake of others. I want to share with you a story about a man named John Jacob, not Jingleheimer Smith. John Jacob Astor, interesting name, European guy, who immigrated to the United States in the 18th century, the first multimillionaire in the United States. Pretty interesting. He was in the fur trade and in real estate. It was a different day back then, wasn't it? Fur trade and real estate. But ever since he came to the United States and had children and raised them here in New York, the Astor family has been very prominent in the United States and in the UK. John Jacob's great-great-granddaughter-in-law, okay, follow me here, his great-great-granddaughter-in-law was a woman named Brooke Astor, and she died in 2007 at the age of 105 lived a long time, and she married into the Astor family. 
Remember, she's the great-great-granddaughter-in-law. She married into that family. It was her third marriage, and her husband died in 1959. And she remained a widow all the way until her death in 2007. She lived in New York. New York City um, grew the wealth that she inherited from her husband. She was very, very rich. I don't think her riches are fully known. But she grew the fortune while also being committed to philanthropy, one of New York's greatest philanthropists of all time. In fact, she was so well known for her giving, usually in secret, but people knew that she gave, um, just not to whom specifically. But she was so committed to it that in 1998, at the ripe age of 96, she was given the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She was just someone who loved to give. Upon her death, New York's mayor, Michael Bloomberg, said this about her. She was a quintessential New Yorker and one of the great philanthropists of our time. Tens of thousands of New Yorkers were the beneficiaries of Mrs. Astor's goodwill and kind nature, many unaware of the origins of the donations. Now, I bring all this up because I love this quote from her. This is perhaps her most famous quote. She said, Money is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless it's spread around. <laughs> Money's like manure. Not worth anything unless it's spread around. Well, she had, for whatever reason, I don't know her spiritual life at all, but for whatever reason, she had a passion for taking the riches she had been given and spreading them. She saw her riches as worth nothing unless it affected the other people around her. And when we think about how we have been enriched in Christ in all speech and in all knowledge, what are we to do with that speech and that knowledge? All that wealth. All these things that we learn in Scripture. All these truths that we know about the gospel. Yes, it might build you up, and it should build you up, and it should continue building you up until you die. But you need to spread it around. Take those riches and be a philanthropist with the riches God has given you in Christ. That you would share those life-changing truths with the church and with the world. So if you have the knowledge of Christ and the gospel, does your speech reflect that? I want you to think about that. If you have a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, does your speech reflect it? Because our speech and our knowledge reflect that we are living testimonies of Christ and His gospel. Look at verse 6. He says, You've been enriched in these things even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony of Christ. The witness of Christ, yours might say. It's the Greek word martyr. As you've been made martyrs of Christ. Well, what is this testimony? It's a true embrace of the gospel message that leads to a genuine profession. It's a genuine embrace of the gospel. I want to read to you 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, 10 through 12. He talks about the testimony and what this is, the testimony of God in Christ. He says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, 
and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The testimony is having Jesus in your heart, thereby having eternal life. Springing up fountains of living water, that's the testimony. And Paul says that it was confirmed among them. It was established. It was made sure. And certainly this is by way of their profession of the gospel. Their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Their adhering to the cross, clinging to the cross as the only means of their salvation. They had a radical change in profession. Remember the Corinthians, it was this cosmopolitan city full of sin. Who knows what they were professing before? Probably all types of false worldviews and false theologies. But now their profession is Jesus. They had come to know God through the gospel. The testimony was confirmed in them. And knowing what we know about this church, thinking into later chapters where Paul talks about spiritual gifts, it's likely that sign gifts were a part of this too, that there was evidence of the gospel coming into their lives. As we saw in the book of Acts through our study, they would speak with tongues when they would receive the Holy Spirit. There was probably an aspect where that happened in the city of Corinth at this church. But they were established at the beginning through their testimony of the Son of God. And that same word that's found there for confirmed in verse 6, you can find it in verse 8. We're going to get to it in just a minute. They were confirmed at the beginning and they're going to be confirmed to the end because Jesus will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When a testimony comes into someone's heart, the testimony of Jesus, it doesn't leave. It gets there by way of God's power and it stays there by way of God's power. The testimony of Jesus. And there are two purposes that are listed out for us in verse 7 as to why they were established with this testimony. Why did God do this by His power? Two purposes. Verse 7 starts with that phrase, so that, and I hope you've learned from me by now. When you see so that, you need to stop and pause because it's indicating purpose, right? He's telling them why they were established or confirmed in Christ, and he gives them two purposes here. The first one is for spiritual gifts. Let's just read it together, starting in verse 6 again. The testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first reason they were established in Christ was to be not lacking in any gift. That you that's found there in verse 7, so that you are not lacking, that's plural. So it's like saying y'all. So that y'all are not lacking. Uh, Yvonne's not here. Man, she could have given us a demonstration. Um, so that y'all are not lacking in any gift. And the church at Corinth was not lacking in any gift because they had been established by Christ as a church. Now, as one commentator said, because of all of their sin issues at that church, the gifts had gone sour, probably. These good gifts that God had given maybe were being suppressed or twisted, used in the wrong way. They'd gone sour. But they were there. God established them so that they would not be lacking in any gift in the church. They had been equipped by God with spiritual abilities to build one another up. Paul's getting ready to talk about their divisions in the next paragraph. We're going to talk about that next week. 
how they had many divisions among them. And so Paul's reminding them before he gets to that part, he's saying, look, you were saved by Christ so that you would together, as you all come together, not be lacking in any gift. So what do divisions do? It seeks to reverse the work of God. That's why it's so heartbreaking in a church when there's division and churches split. Because what is God doing in building his church? He's bringing people together. That there would be unity. That they would have a a sense of being one together. And they wouldn't be lacking as all members come together to form the body. But if you take half of those members and you separate them, you're reversing a work of God or attempting to reverse a work of God. This church was saved. These people were saved so that they would have these spiritual abilities, these gifts from God to build up the body. And this is still true today. What was God thinking when he saved you? You ever asked yourself that question? You, you might answer heretically, so maybe don't, answer, don't ask yourself that question. You might answer it with something you don't mean. God was thinking many things when he saved you. He was setting his love on you. He was displaying the riches of his mercy. So many things he was thinking, but we can say this too, that when God saved you, his mind was also on loving service in his church. He doesn't just save us so that we could be little embers out on our own, seeking to keep a fire going as we're away from everybody else. But he saves us, bringing us all together, all these embers together, that there might be a good kind of fire, that there might be a togetherness, a burning for him, that we together might be strengthened and that our fire wouldn't die out, that together we would not be found lacking. Do you know that on your own, there's a lot of stuff you lack? When you are all by yourself, think of all the things you don't have and all the things you're missing. Not just physically and not just, you know, acquired skills, but spiritually. Every single one of us, if we are out on our own, we are lacking. Each one of us. But together, as we come together as God's church, we are not lacking any good gift. Because God's the one building this thing, isn't He? God's the one putting this thing together. He's the one supplying our every need. And the church is part and parcel to the Christian life. The, the idea that that you in verse 7 is plural is key. Let's look at it again. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift so that you all are not lacking in any gift. He has never designed a singular person to have all the things that he needs on his own. But together, as he builds his church, we find that we are not lacking because we have each other in this common salvation. That's the first purpose in our being established and enriched in Christ. The second purpose there in verse 7 is that we would also be awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Am I saying that you are saved to wait? Yep, because that's what Scripture says. You are saved, you are confirmed in Christ so that you would await eagerly His return. This is the blessed hope of our salvation. 
And it comes up many times in the New Testament. I'll just read a few off to you real quick, starting in Romans 8.23. Romans 8.23 says this, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We're waiting. Galatians 5.5. 5. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. We're waiting. Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 9.28, love this verse. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. And who's he going to appear to? To those who eagerly await him. You were saved to wait. You were given the riches, the wealth of speech and knowledge in Christ for the sake of waiting. Eagerly. Eagerly waiting. We've received a down payment, Scripture says. The Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You've been given a down payment, the Holy Spirit. But we are still waiting eagerly for our inheritance, aren't we? The inheritance is heaven, the hope of heaven. What this is saying to the Corinthians and what this is saying to us is as you've been established in Christ, serve for Him, live for Him, and your mind is to constantly be set on eternity. You're to be constantly thinking about this glorious future that you have that will be revealed in the last day. When Jesus returns, when our faith is turned to sight, what a day that will be. What a wonderful day that will be. Our minds need to be focused on the coming of our great Savior, Jesus. And this is really a lost art today, isn't it? To consider beyond this life as something to eagerly wait for. So many people, and sadly, so many people even in the church cling to this life and think that if I didn't have this life, I don't know what I'd do. This is all I have. God, don't take this from me. I need this life. But that is not the Christian worldview, is it? The Christian worldview says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's a radically different message than what we would ever muster up naturally. In our flesh, we do love the things of this world, and we want to hold on to this life. But where's our hope? Our hope is found in our eternal life. The hope of heaven, the hope of glory. As we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see in a mirror dimly. You want to keep this cruddy old mirror? <laughs> or do you want to see face to face? Do you want to know fully? I do. When a Christian dies, don't weep for the Christian. 
no matter how tragic it might seem to us in this life, well, the Christian's missing out on so much in this life. That Christian's missing out on nothing. That Christian has more than we could ever imagine in this world. Weep for yourself. The hope of heaven, the eternal mindset that we would wait eagerly for the return of Jesus, knowing that being with him in eternity is far better than anything in this life. And God works while we wait. As we're eagerly waiting him in this life, God is at work in us and through us. And you might be thinking, well, I want to have a hope of heaven. I want to look forward to the other side of this life. But it doesn't do any good if I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven. <laughs> you might be thinking that. Well, let's look at verse 8. How do we know that we will go to heaven? It says here that Jesus will also confirm us to the end and he will present us blameless in his day. That Jesus is the one we look to as we wait and he confirms you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, and the message of his gospel, that you are a sinner separated from God. You are deserving of eternal punishment because of your offense against an eternal God. And yet you recognize that God himself, the eternal one, came here and took on flesh. He was found in the likeness of men. He lived a perfect life on your behalf. And he died a substitutionary death, the death you deserve. And he rose again three days later. That all who come to him empty-handed, by faith alone, can and will be saved. If that is your gospel, if your heart is truly given over to that message, if you have truly believed, if you've turned from your sins, not in the sense of stopping your sin and, and becoming perfect, no one could ever do that. But if you've turned from your sins in the sense that you recognize Jesus is Lord and you can't bring these things he hates with you to the cross, if you drop that and say, I just want you, Jesus, save me, rescue me, then you will be saved. Always. It's not your responsibility from that point forward to keep your salvation, but God grants it to you. It's His work, and He is the one, it says in verse 8, who will establish or confirm you to the end. So that in His day, when He returns, you'll be guiltless. Remember, we just read Hebrews 9.28? He will appear a second time without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. When he comes back for his bride, he's not coming with a hammer and saying, time to bonk you over the head for all your sins. But he comes back for his bride without reference to sin. And we're going to be dressed in white at the wedding feast. The righteous deeds of the saints that he has worked through us. But for those who don't know him, his coming will be fully, totally, completely in reference to sin. It will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of condemnation. 
But for those of us in Jesus, there now is no condemnation. No condemnation for God's church. And why is that? Let's dip into verse 9. It says, God is faithful. Because God is faithful. Think about Paul writing this letter to the messed up Corinthians. If he had looked to the Corinthians for his source of knowing if, if they were truly saved, converted, if he was purely looking at their lives, would he have any reason to have confidence? He'd have a lot of doubts, wouldn't he? Because they, we're going to find out over and over again, they were living like carnal people. But he says, God is the faithful one. And it's through this faithful God that we were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a courtroom scene that's being presented here. In verse 6, we learn that there's a testimony given. There's a witness given. And that witness is confirmed, the testimony of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And because of that confirmed testimony, verse 8 says, we are declared innocent. We're guiltless. And that's if we appeal to the Savior. If we appeal to Jesus for our lives and say, not me, but Christ, you will be declared innocent, blameless, guiltless in the day of Jesus. What an amazing thing. Well, we got a long way to go, but we're, we're making progress. <laughs> Next week, we'll pick up in verse 9 again. Let's pray. Lord, we do indeed thank you that this salvation is your work, that this building of the church is your work, and that because of Jesus and because of the powerful Holy Spirit who has wrought salvation in our hearts, we can stand before you free of any condemnation, totally innocent and free on the merits of Christ alone. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.